take a network break, get a virtual donut and an iced caffeinated beverage, and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. Greg Farrow will be back next week, but fear not, Ethan Banks is here to opine. We've got new products from Cato Networks, The Cilium Project, NVIDIA, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak for 30% off all plans. Use the promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak, and use that promo code to get 30% off all plans. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored conversation with Nokia. We're talking about Connect. This is a feature in Nokia's fabric services system. It integrates with platforms such as VMware, OpenStack, and Kubernetes, so you can streamline the provisioning of network services and top of rack switches when new workloads or services are instantiated. Uh, last but not least, we've got a new podcast series called Kubernetes Unpacked. It is currently in the community channel. It covers all things Kubernetes. Host Michael Levan talks to developers, infrastructure pros, and community members about how to learn, use, and succeed with Kubernetes and related tools. So check that out in the community channel. And I have a feeling we'll graduate to the full podcast network because Michael is cranking out the episodes. Yes, he certainly is cranking them <laughs> out indeed. And uh, we got a we got a follow-up, some follow-up from the community, Drew. Yes, uh, we always like follow-up, whether corrections, commentary, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, last week, Ethan, you and I talked about uh, new Juniper campus switches. They're supporting EVPN VXLAN for campus fabrics. Uh, we mentioned a use case for those fabrics is to support multi-tenancy. This listener wrote in to say that building an arbitrary topology IP underlay is a better use case. He says, quote, in large campus networks, not being forced to have a stack MLAG star network could make physical cabling much simpler and you get a more reliable network. Yeah, my brain automatically goes to multi-tenancy when I think about uh, VXLAN and, uh, and EVPN and laying that out for the enterprise. But uh, but he's got a great point. I think what he's getting at there is you, you get to extend a layer two domain over any wiring topology you want mm -hmm. if you're going to use a, a VXLAN setup rather than being married to whatever you can build with multi-chassis ether channel slash MLAG because that kind of locks you into both sides of the physical link, being able to talk the same protocol safely to do that multi-link extension of L2 between the boxes. And, you know, you got to do multi-link because, you know, redundancy and you need that bandwidth between the tiers and so on. And and yeah, you end up, it looks like a star. That's what you get, this uh, hub and spoke or star topology. And that could be a really inconvenient topology to be locked into sometimes, uh, Drew. It's nice when you got this building and you laid out all the cabling and built the closets and so on. But of course, the point here he's making... With VXLAN EVPN, you can extend the layer two VLAN anywhere you like over whatever layer three ECMP topology you'd prefer to build. And so you get this predictable, stable underlay and then can put layer two on top of it all encapsulated. And you don't have to do multi-chassis ether channel or stacking or virtual stacking or anything like that. You don't need LACP. You can let EVPN do all the heavy control plane lifting. Tunnels for the wind, Drew. Tunnels for the wind. <laughs> it's all about tunnels. It's all about abstractions. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing in. Uh, we love to get those kind of comments. Uh, again, you can hit us up on anything you hear on Packet Pushers or on any of our podcasts at packetpushers.net slash FU. And of course, the FU stands for follow up. All right. Let's dive into the news. First, Cato Networks has added data loss prevention or DLP capabilities to its cloud delivered security portfolio. The DLP service scans network traffic for sensitive files and data types thinking credit cards, social security numbers, et cetera. And then the service can take policy based actions like blocking that, alerting it or allowing it. Uh, Ethan, for me, DLP is one of those security tools that it sounds good on paper, becomes often very difficult to implement successfully because you run the risk of locking legitimate transactions of workflows or falsely identifying data as sensitive when it's not and so on. And then if you're also working with encrypted traffic, that can blind DLP depending on where and when that inspection happens. 
Yeah, encryption was the thing that you know, popped to my head because the vast majority of communications today are encrypted. And so how is Cato handling that? Um, with the Cato setup, you, 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 I would assume that there's some kind of man in the middle that they're offering where right. Cato will do the encrypt and the decrypt so that they can do the inspections. Um, I don't know how bad the false positives are in the world of DLP these days. You know, back in the early days, I did some DLP um, and that work was a lot of pattern matching. And for things like, like I, I was working at that time, uh, somewhere that cared about credit card numbers leaking. And so we did a lot of pattern matching that were pretty well defined and it was pretty easy to, um, you know, to get those patterns to match. I don't know how bad the false positive problem is this these days. I would hope, Drew, that it's not nearly as bad as what you end up with with uh, IDS IPS systems, which is just an endless stream of things screaming at you that right. very yes. often aren't especially helpful. Yeah, my presumption is that if you're going to use DLP, you would use it sparingly for the most sensitive, highly critical data that absolutely cannot be leaked uh, to kind of minimize the noise that that system is going to generate. Uh, Cato also says of, it's using, of course, machine learning and anomaly detection to help minimize those issues like false positives. Uh, and in regard to the uh, decryption, my understanding of the Cato architecture, they're using either a client or you know an edge device that is uh, sending an encrypted tunnel into one of their POPs where it does get decrypted for all of the variety of inspections you can get. They've got, also got IPS, next-gen firewall, a secure web gateway, et cetera, that sort of full stack you'd expect from a SASE or SSE uh, kind of offering. And correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, but Cato's really staked their portfolio on the security aspect of it. That's been kind of their calling card, yeah? Right. You sort of get that SDN kind of feel with Cato, but it's also very much focused on the security controls aspect of it. Yeah, they're definitely coming out as a sassier security play for sure. Uh, link in the show notes if you want more details. Uh, moving on, the open source Cilium project that provides container networking using extended Berkeley packet filter or eBPF has announced version 1.12 uh, release. And as a very quick background, uh, eBPF lets you run a very tightly controlled set of programs in the Linux kernel and Cilium's an agent that runs in space, user space on Linux and communicates with eBPF. Yeah, EPPF is the new sexy right now, and Cilium sure is, is uh, <laughs> making their, their reputation on being able to do lots of magic with EPPF programs as opposed to, uh, in this case, um, well, there's a lot of things here, so let, let's back up. First of all, Cilium, this is the 1.12 release, lots and lots and lots of features, but the big one and the one that's gotten the most copy is Cilium Service Mesh. And the idea here is you can do a lot of things with Cilium Service Mesh that traditionally would have been done by a sidecar proxy. That is a container that sits off to the side of another container that's doing most of the work in a Kubernetes pod. And that sidecar proxy would handle a bunch of functions that you don't want to have to code into your main container, your main application running in your main container. So you stick it all in this sidecar proxy. And the sidecar um, proxy du jour at the moment is Envoy, I believe. Yeah, that's 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 one of them for sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big one. Istio being the uh, the control plane. Um, and so what Cilium is doing is saying, hey, let's take some of that functionality we put into the sidecar proxy and let's uh, move it into eBPF programs so if we can. And maybe we can get rid of sidecar proxies and their argument is twofold of why you'd want to do this. One is performance and the other is simplicity. You know, performance in the sense of if we can keep all this code in the running in the kernel, we don't have to punt uh, traffic out to uh, user space and then back to kernel space and you know, we're saving some processing time there. If we don't have to 
put it through a sidecar proxy. We're also going to be saving on latency and processing and handing traffic back and forth between these processes. Mm-hmm. You know, then simplicity, because if I don't have to have a sidecar proxy, it just all runs in eBPF, then the data path seems simpler and maybe my troubleshooting is simpler. Although, Drew, <laughs> gotta go. Wait a minute. <laughs> gotta go. I was waiting for the although. <laughs> well, well, there's a big there's a big problem here with this. Not problem, but there's a big, you know, kind of asterisk, which is you can't do everything a sidecar proxy would do in eBPF. As you said in, in the setup for this section, eBPF is a limited set of things that you're right. allowed to do. And so, uh, like, I don't believe you can do uh, TLS um, encryption and decryption at the eBPF level. I think that's one of the one of the biggies. If, if it's not that one, it's other similar sorts of functions where this too, you would be asking eBPF to do too much because it just isn't uh, really set up for that. Therefore, right. you still need a sidecar proxy to handle some of those functions. And in that case, you now have not simplified things in my, <laughs> to my way of thinking anyway. You've actually added eBPF as another place that can be doing certain things and you get that performance gain, which is awesome, but it's not simpler. Wait a minute, did that just happen in the kernel at eBPF or did I punt that off to the sidecar proxy? And so now you've got to deal with tracing and you've got to deal with uh, understanding the data path rather intimately. And so I'm not, I'm not sure that for most people who need to run a service mesh, that going to Cilium service mesh will necessarily simplify uh, what they're doing overall. Performance gains, though, that's a that's a big win. And I think people that are worried about how many microseconds it takes for them to process a transaction are going to be very interested in this because depending on your use case and the function you're trying to punt into eBPF and let it do it rather than punt it out to the sidecar proxy, some of the gains were enormous, like on the order of 8, eight or 10x uh, uh, of a performance win uh, for doing whatever that function might have been within eBPF. So I, I can definitely see a lot of excitement around this. And uh, and by the way, we're going to interview Thomas Graf uh, for a future Day to Cloud episode. Thomas is one of the uh, he's the creator of Cilium, and he's the CTO and co-founder of Isovalent, one of the main companies that's behind the open source uh, Cilium project. So we're going to pick his brain on some of this and try to get some more detail coming up on Day 2 Cloud, Drew. Yeah, and just to round this out, uh, Cilium is a project within CNCF that's a cloud-native computing foundation, which is a, an offshoot of the Linux Foundation. So it's got you know some sort of official community backing. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. And I'll also, I think you guys also did a show recently on eBPF, on D2 Cloud, so we'll have those links in the show notes as well if you want to really drill in here. Uh, moving on, Cisco's announced a new program that aims to make it easier for service providers to resell a WebEx managed service. It's called Cisco Wholesale for WebEx. It's part of a broader effort by Cisco to make it easier for customers to license and use Cisco products. Uh, quoting from the press release, the offering, quote, includes a single commercial agreement with each partner and a self-service platform for service providers to deliver managed services for WebEx, as well as the agility, scalability, and flexibility to create their own co-branded offers. Um, I'm thinking back to Cisco Live 2022. One of the themes that came out for me uh, from all the executive keynotes was uh, a message they returned to over and over that Cisco needs to be easier to work with, reduce license complexity, make the product and the portfolio easier to consume. So I'm assuming this new program is aligning with that effort. But do you as a reseller want to be rocking up to your customer with WebEx as the offering? I, 
I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm just saying, it's gotten better, right, Drew? Well, it's certainly gotten better to use uh, over the years, but uh, easier to sell, maybe maybe that's the win. Maybe that's the catalyst that makes uh, makes WebEx the thing that's gonna really you know push in and beat down Microsoft Teams and Zoom. I don't know. Yeah, we can definitely have a debate on the value of WebEx, but if that's what you want uh, and that's what you have to sell, then I guess that's what you're going to sell. Uh, but and, and thank you for filling in for Greg there on the WebEx bashing, which uh, a network do, wouldn't do, be complete without. Do you mean? Sorry. <laughs> Not at all. I th- Well-deserved. I would say well-deserved based on what we hear. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And here's a special offer for Network Break listeners. You can sign up and save 30% off all plans. Did you know there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles? You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. And IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. They have engaging hosts that present information in a talk show format. They're live every day, and shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you need. And you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand worldwide via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak. And remember, you get 30% off all plans when you use the promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash NETWORKBREAK. We thank ITPROTV for being a sponsor. Uh, Back to the news. Chipmaker NVIDIA has announced a platform that aims to bridge quantum computing and classical programming. It's called Quantum Optimized Device Architecture, or QUOTA. NVIDIA says AI and HPC researchers can use QUOTA to add quantum computing to existing applications. Yeah, I read this one, and I read it. I read this press release three times. So getting my head around this, what it feels like this is happening here is that this isn't just a quantum computing play, but it is a way to take what you've been doing for programming traditionally and integrate some quantum functionality into it. It felt like this like uh, hybrid uh, connection there that allows NVIDIA to, to, you can leverage more NVIDIA silicon as you're doing your, your coding. <laughs> Um, and, and leverage some quantum functionality there. And there's a simulation component to this too, Drew. Yeah, I, I like you had to read the press release several times and based on my reading, what I'm understanding is that what NVIDIA is doing is essentially letting researchers simulate quantum computing using NVIDIA GPUs. Yeah, so it, 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 um, it, it, it all sounds really interesting. Uh, quantum continues to grow, and it's a different bit of news than the news we've been seeing from the quantum world, which is about more and more and more qubits, most of which you can't harness, but uh, more qubits being put <laughs> put through the chips. Uh, this is a different animal where you can use what you've been doing and uh-huh. with silicon you can have today and then is reliable and function and get some quantum benefit. Um, so uh, the, the advances continue for sure. Yes, and NVIDIA also getting into that market saying, buy our chips and do some quantum stuff with it. And it's not, again, it's not NVIDIA releasing a quantum computing platform or quantum computing chip, but using existing chips to do some simulation around quantum computing. Uh, moving on, we got some uh, news from analysts. First, the Delora Group is forecasting that campus switch sales are going to hit $95 billion in revenue over the next five years. Uh, 2.5, 5, and 10 gigabit switches are expected to comprise 10% of port shipments by 2026. Uh, the analyst firm says campus switch sales are likely to be constrained in 2022 and 2023 because of all the usual issues. But once those supply chain issues clear up, spending is expected to ramp. I thought we were all going to cloud. Well, who's buying these switches, man? That's what's going on. 
No. No, I mean, it, it does actually underscore that there's still a lot of on-prem uh, development going on, whether that is uh, access layer switches for folks that are going to be coming back to the office that need upgrades and uh, Wi-Fi 6 and 6E perhaps driving right. some of that. Yep. Uh, to just um, the, the whole work from home for everything, everyone thing you know, we're seeing in the news, a lot of demand for people to come back to the office. So I'm not surprised that there's some investment going on with campuses. But I'm curious, Drew, do you happen to know if Del Oro's uh, laid out who else was uh, was buying these switches? What was driving any of this? Because this is specifically campus switches. It wasn't, I mean, they're not talking about cloud providers and data center operators that are buying these switches, right? Right. It was about enterprise. And uh, we're just working from the press release, so not a lot of details. But there is a, um, a quote that comes out that says, fundamental growth drivers remain in place. There is substantial technology debt urging customers to upgrade their networks. Uh, and my presumption is that you know, as we see Wi-Fi networks getting upgraded, that's going to pull through the the switch sales as well. Oh, you okay? So you pair that with the supply chain constraints, and and we're seeing people. Like I was reading a conversation yesterday from the Packet Pushers audience Slack channel, which you can go to packetpushers.net slash Slack and join it if you want. Uh, but in there, they were talking about getting people getting forecasts of it's a year out before you're going to be able to get this switch. Yes. a year, yes, or more of lead times, and right. so. Right. If there's all this pent up demand, I mean, we're seeing that not just with, you know, campus switches, but just across the retail world broadly, you know, pent up demand. People haven't been able to get things. And now that they can get them, you know, they're buying them, which causes this big burst uh, of sales that are happening. So it feels like that's a component of what's happening here too. Sales are good because they haven't been able to get them for a couple of years. And they're still not going to be able to get them. They're not anticipating that growth to start until after 2023. So it is, I think, mm. a, a feature of that pent up demand and then needing to upgrade as you go because you haven't had a refresh in two, three, four, five years. Mm. Uh, and sticking with analyst forecast, Gartner's projecting worldwide IT spending is going to reach $4.5 trillion in 2022, which is up 3% over 2021. Uh, despite headwinds such as supply chain disruption and inflation, Gartner says CIO spending plans aren't going to be deterred uh, for this year. That is a vast number, $4.5 trillion. <laughs> That's global. Um, right. and, it, and it is all of IT. Including cloud, so yes. So, so, okay, including cloud. So allow me to, to throw out some wild speculation here. Do, you know, and that is about, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> just wing something here. And, and that is about the metaverse. Uh, I listen to financial podcasts in my spare time because, hey, that's fun. It's fun to hear what the Wall Street people are thinking about technology and how they look at different companies and invest in them. And one of the topics that's been popular right now, uh, especially with uh, crypto and Web3 kind of on the downturn, so many of the companies that were big in the crypto and Web3 space have just crashed hard, lost 80, 90% of their value. They went to market as a SPAC and it got completely blown up. And so all those darlings that everyone was like, this is the best thing ever. Oh, wait, there's actually nothing there. I have no money anymore. <laughs> Boo. So they've looked at what's the next thing. And then the metaverse keeps coming up. So companies are looking at a company like Facebook, who, of course, rebranded to Meta and they're going to have the metaverse. And what does the metaverse economy look like? And, uh, you know, and so on. If you take a step back and assume that the metaverse is a thing that companies are going to bet big on and build around, what I have been wondering in my mind is, what does the cloud backend infrastructure look like if the metaverse is has similar demands to it graphically as you would have for gaming, a gaming platform? Where does all that happen? Are you going to have people that are contributing or participating in the metaverse? Is that all going to happen in their headsets and the goggles that they're wearing? 
or if they're not consuming via goggles, are they going to be looking at phones or an iPad or, or a television screen or something? And I think there's a, a chance here that a lot of the processing actually happens on the back end in the cloud. And there's, there's various gaming services that do this today where all the computation for what you're seeing on the screen is happening in the cloud. And you're basically getting a picture of what happened rather than rendering uh, all the polygons and textures and so on on your local GPU. What I'm getting to here is does the metaverse, if it becomes a thing, if it's like actually heading into some sort of reality that people are going to be able to consume in the next, say, two to five years, let's keep the, the try to keep the time horizon reasonable mm -hmm. and short. Mm -hmm. Do you need a lot of compute power on the back end? Do you need from a networking perspective to be able to push a lot more data out if you assume there's some talk here that basically Gen Z grew up with an iPad in their hand? And so the expectation is they're going to latch on to this whole metaverse thing. They live in Roblox and uh, and Fortnite, and they do gaming as a way to socialize and not just play games, but interact with each other. If that becomes our new reality and the metaverse does indeed take hold, do we have to have cloud data centers and networking uh, on a much larger scale than we have even today with all the streaming that we're doing to be able to drive that, to be able to actually put the picture of the metaverse into someone's face, you know, into their eyeballs. Right. And I'm speculating here because I know that the goggles, Drew, those are, you're doing a lot of that computation uh, locally. Right. And there's some kind of a local GPU that's doing a lot of the image generation. It's not happening back in a data center. But if it does end up happening a lot in the data center, that I'm, I'm theorizing that maybe uh, this a lot of the spending is being driven by that. Now, you pair that with 8K uh, video streaming, completely different thing. I just skipped from Metaverse and went to another <laughs> thing. That's another thing that's been on my mind. Okay, 4K has got to become normal, right, Drew? Okay, so we can we all do 4K. We can stream 4K in our houses. It's probably uh, you know a 17-ish to 25 or 30-ish data stream, depending on who you're pulling from and what quality and so on. 8K, I don't even know what the data stream sizes are other than freaking huge. Uh -huh. um, and as broadband becomes more pervasive and it's slowly but surely in, in the US market, let's say it's uh, it's penetrating. Do we need more network there to be able to begin handling 8K streams? Now that's really early days for that. But as a service provider, do you start preparing for 8K video streams to come over the top across your network where you have to invest in more infrastructure and more fiber and uh, you know more switches and, and potentially more compute to be able to handle all of that? So, I mean, there's a few drivers here that have traditionally driven um, a lot of uh, investment in infrastructure that are on the horizon that I think could be driving uh, other bits going forward. And I just made up a lot of stuff, do I admit that? But um, <laughs> but but there's, there's something here that's driving this uh, for sure. And uh, 2022 could be just the beginning. I think as some things like the metaverse begin to take hold and as we get, begin to see 8K panels that aren't you know, ten or $15,000 and we begin to think, oh, maybe I should upgrade to an 8K screen. And then you're gonna want that 8K content over the next few years that maybe becomes a reality. Uh, wow, okay, that was a lot. So a couple of things that come to mind. <laughs> First, I feel like the metaverse is a desperate fiction being promulgated by Facebook because user growth has plateaued and they know they're doomed unless they do something new. So they're screaming about meta and metaverse as a way to distract, um, you know, the financial services industry from penalizing them for having reached pretty much everybody who wants to be on Facebook is on Facebook. Uh, so their growth is plateauing, that kind of thing. 
Um, I will say, though, I just saw a news story, and we didn't include it here, about Google releasing, rebooting Google Glass uh, as more of an augmented reality play as opposed to being the creepy I'm going to film you while we talk play that they initially rolled it out. Um, and I can see that this may be a generational thing with younger folks who really get into like Pokemon Go and stuff, that augmented reality element, which isn't quite the full immersive metaverse where I'm in an entirely, you know, uh, computer generated realm, but I'm actually like looking at the physical world, but having some kind of overlay on top of it, giving me more information or whatever. I could see something like that maybe emerging over time. Uh, I do think the metaverse is going to be very specific use cases, you know, for gaming and other entertainments. I, I don't imagine having meetings in the metaverse. That just seems like a terrible experience. But I, I take your point in general that if we do get these kind of things, it is going to demand more growth. 8K, I, I'm already like, I don't, standard definition is fine for me, but I'm old. So what do I know? And I don't want to be, I'm thinking of that Bill Gates quote, uh, infamous quote about nobody will ever need more than, was it 16 bits? Uh, of RAM, which, <laughs> 640k of memory <laughs> right yeah. right something like that so i don't want to be the guy and be like hey k i'll never take off because that's a stupid uh hill to die on so yeah uh yeah i don't know but um i think those yeah it could be you know sort of the, the the slow building currents uh that will continue to drive spending as we want to push more data and more things over whatever wireless wireless uh into classes into tablets whatever one more counterpoint just about your comment on Facebook and the metaverse being a desperate fiction Facebook is perpetrating upon the world. I actually agree with that. Facebook's interpretation or definition of what the metaverse is going to be and that they're going to be the power behind it is indeed a desperate fiction that seems unlikely to be the reality of it for me. However, I do think the metaverse has captured the imagination of a lot of people where they think this could be the thing. This could be the next big thing. And mm -hmm. so I, while mm -hmm. I am dubious that Facebook will necessarily be the central power behind the metaverse, I think it is more likely there'll be a consortium of a variety of interested parties that want to see the metaverse being more or less a democratized space, kind of like the internet became a democratized space that we all use. I suspect we will see eventually some flavor of the metaverse that anyone can plug into. It'll be some kind of standards based. There'll be some agreement on how to interchange and interact in there, even though you're creating your own component of it as uh, as company X. Uh, if that if I'm right and if that comes to reality and it is the next big thing and that's very up in the air, then um, <laughs> then the metaverse becomes. I don't know, more like the snow crash thing, right? Where, uh, where it's something we all log into and can participate in. Maybe without so much dystopia, perhaps. You Hopefully. Know. Although but, I, I feel like we're veering yeah. into a heavy strategies episode because I want to argue with you about the internet being a democratized space and where it's headed, but that's we're, we're getting off track here. So, <laughs> But we can come back to Fair that enough. some other day. But yes, I take your point that, I, I yes, uh, Facebook wants to be the master of the metaverse and God help us all if that happens. All right, uh, let's wrap up with uh, something a little lighter. Uh, Ethan, this came across your desk. Apparently, there's an organization that has produced an enterprise architecture emotional footprint report, which tracks the emotional response rating of enterprise architects about software products and their product impact. Um, and they've also announced winners, the, the software products with the best net emotional footprint score are products I've never heard of, like HopX and Capsify. Um, but I just, just this whole notion of, of having an emotional response and measuring that emotional response to an IT product uh, really fascinated me. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you like doing business with your vendor? Yeah. I hate them. I sit at my desk and cut every day. <laughs> It would be the response I fear yes. uh, several of the vendors would get because the experience is so awful. 
Oh, and so, no, I don't know that if I'm a vendor, I would open this report up with anything other than, you know, fear and trepidation. Uh, and, and, and again, I don't know who all they, they covered and so on, all companies were in the list, but, uh, Yikes, you know, I mean, how many companies do any of us do business with that we're just so happy we did that, you know, as opposed to, I have no other choice, so I've got to write them a check every month and grit my teeth when I do it. You know, so I have to say, when you mentioned this and put it in the show notes, I was gearing up to make fun of it. But the more I think about it, if used well, it could be a powerful metric. Like imagine, uh, you know, a networking company and a product manager walking into a team meeting and being like, Hey folks, we really got to lower the loathing and despair metrics uh, on this network <laughs> management product, right? Just think about what that could lead to, right? Maybe we've been thinking about how to do this all wrong. Loathing and despair metric. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> when people buy our product and it shows up on the deck and on the dock, they're very sad. <laughs> we really got to do better, guys. We, gotta we really got to do. Could we stop shipping so many bugs? That'd be outstanding. Let's work on that. Oh. Yeah, so maybe we're onto something here. I don't know. Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, Ethan, thanks again for sitting in while Greg is out. He'll be back next week. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsor, TechBytes Conversation with Nokia. We're going to be talking about its Connect capability for integrating networking across compute workloads. That's coming right up. Today on the TechBytes podcast, we welcome back sponsor Nokia to talk about a compelling new feature in Nokia's Fabric Services system. This feature called Connect lets Fabric Services system integrate with platforms like VMware, OpenStack, and Kubernetes. So you get to streamline the provisioning of network services and top of rack switches when new workloads or services are instantiated. Our guest is Erwan James. He is product land manager at Nokia to talk about uh, Connect with us. And Erwan, welcome back to the podcast. So can we start with some context, both on Fabric Services system and the Connect capability? What are they? What do they do? Thanks, Drew. Yeah, so Fabric Services System is uh, Nokia's intent-based uh, data center fabric uh, automation platform. Uh, so in Fabric Services System, we handle data center switch fabric design, uh, as well as uh, deployment. So, you know, config generation and, and ZTP of devices. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the kind of uh, operations out of the house and change management after the fabric is operational. And Connect is a part of Fabric Services System, which uh, aims at providing a simplified API and a plug-in registration system for the various cloud uh, compute platforms, such as VMware or OpenStack or Kubernetes, as you mentioned, the intro, Drew. Um, so where, what Connect provides here is two-dimensional. One is you can imagine that in a data center switch fabric, you have kind of three layers of abstraction or, or typically two layers of, of, of abstraction. The first is the, of course, the no abstraction, which is on the switch fabric where you have, uh, you know, IP verse and VXN uh, uh, EVPNs and VNIs and EVIs and BGP timers. And there's basically the switch configuration. And part of what a switch um, fabric management system, such as fabric services system needs to do is provide, you know, a layer of abstraction above that, right? So that you can provide workload intents and potentially provide subnets. And then, you know, we would figure out what all the knobs need to be configured on the devices. Uh, but that even then we have to adhere to, you know, a wide range of operators, those who are very tech savvy, who want to come and play with all the different routing knobs. And then those who are kind of on the extreme, which is typically found in the cloud uh, compute platform side, which is, well, I just want to submit, I just want a router and how you, how you connect that is kind of up to you guys. Right. And this is where connect comes into play. It's just really providing that simplified API, uh, such that someone who's developing automation, uh, tied to an, uh, a compute platform can just make an API call to create a router and then fabric services connect would then uh, abstract that into a bunch of configurations, which could apply to the switches. Okay. So let me read that back to you to make sure I'm understanding. I've got, uh, I've got my data center network. I've, I've built the fabric and if I need to get, and there's a workload on a compute platform spinning up and I need to bring it into the fabric 
Connect is helping me do that configuration on the switch side so that that workload, you know, gets into the right VLAN or something. Yeah, absolutely. So Connect is really just the interface. And then there's typically plugins for each of the compute platforms. And we can get into those in a little bit. But so VMware, for instance, a VMware platform would have a different plugin than an OpenStack platform than say a Kubernetes platform. And what Connect provides is really the ability to abstract some of those uh, uh, APIs so that the, the development of the plugin is simplified, as well as uh, the workflow, right? So the second part of what Connect provides is uh, an ability to automate the deployment part of this. So as we know, these compute platforms, you know, the, the promise is that you can dynamically scale applications up and down, your application can land on any compute and therefore the, the, the network needs to follow, right? Mm -hmm. um, now in a traditional maybe uh, uh, old school networking methodology, you may have had your compute platform team request for you to create these VLANs ahead of time such that by the time they create the uh, applications, they would be connected. Uh, or potentially they even add deployment time. There's a change request that comes in and you have to deployment, right? Uh, to mm -hmm. deploy changes on the network. This really aims to provide an ability for these plugins to interact directly with the switch fabric, such that as these applications get instantiated and they have certain networking requirements, the networking is reacting to those changes and provisioning certain services within the boundaries of the acceptable uh, rules put in place by the networking team, of course, to then deploy those, those changes fabric-wide. Now, Erwin, I'm going to raise my hand as one of those people that's been tasked with creating VLANs to support the coming workloads hitting, in, in my case, a VMware cluster. Uh, so give me an example of how Connect, which you described in part as being intent-based, how does that work with, uh, with a VMware environment? Sure. So VMware is kind of twofold, right? As we know, VMware works both with their overlay system, NSX, and then they work, you know, in the, the pre-NSX days with the, the standard DV switches and port groups and VLANs, right? Um, so I think the more interesting use case potentially is actually not on the NSX side. So on the NSX side, the, 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 the network separation and the overlays begin at the computes and really the switch fabric needs to transport that and then potentially exit the, uh, the NSX overlay to provide reachability outside the data center fabric. So of course, with Connect, you can provide that reachability through gateways and allow the, the breakout from, you know, the NSX overlay to, to your gate, to your, um, to your, to the rest of your network. But on the non-NSX side of the house, uh, some capabilities that Connect can provide is we have this plugin system, which allows you to um, work in two modes. The first mode is it allows the network to react to configuration of those DV switches and port groups in VMware. What I mean by that is you could create a DV switch, add your uplinks, add your port groups, and of course the associated VLANs with those port groups in VMware. And what uh, FSS Connect and its plugin would do is then, um, attach itself and I'm mean, sorry, listen to the vCenter and attach the interfaces on the top of rack switches dynamically as you provision the port groups in the VLANs. And this allows you to do two things. One is that of course, you're always uh, sure that you have the correct VLANs on the top of rack switches when you provision the uh, computes. Uh, and two, you don't, have, you don't have unnecessary configurations across your switches uh, in in the event that you may have uh, you know computes coming in the future, you don't have to pre-provision VLANs, you don't have to pre-provision eVPN, VXN services. This is really done dynamically as the compute comes online, as the provisioning of that compute happens. We can react to the uh, to the change happening on the compute side of the house and ensure that yes, we do have that VLAN on the, on that top of rack switch, and we stitch that VXN VPN service to really tie in your different computes for using the same uh, uh, VLANs across the fabric. It saves me some of the ma uh, manual work, saves some of the operational tasks, but still has some some bounds and controls on it. So we're not just willy nilly creating VLANs all over the place, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of have two modes of operation. And the first one is we can work in an operation in a mode where we're completely transparent. So the fabric service system connect uh, VMware plugin can be completely transparent where we 
literally will create a layer two service for every VLAN and port group mapping you create, right? Um, the other mode of operation is you can have the networking team actually create some of these services in the fabric services system, which don't necessarily translate to configurations on switches quite yet, put some extra boundaries, some extra configurations in place, ACLs, QoS, whatever may be needed. And then when you provision the compute and the port groups and the DV switches, you can add some metadata. And the metadata will tell the plugin that it actually should attach this port group and this VLAN to a very specific uh, service uh, that was provisioned in Fabric Services System ahead of time. So you can have two modes of operation, they're very simplistic. Uh, hey, if you create a VLAN, we'll create an L2 service, right? And you can do that as, as, as you see fit. Or the second service the mode of operation is, hey, we'll, we'll pre-provision some boundaries, some configurations in Fabric Services System. And as you attach your DV switches, just add this metadata in and we'll pick up on that and we'll make sure we attach it to the correct network. So that's VMware. We've mentioned a couple of other platforms in the intro, one of which is OpenStack. And some of our listeners might be like, OpenStack, is that still out there? But I think OpenStack does have some traction in the telco space. What kind of issues are you trying to solve uh, on the telco side by uh, tying Connect into, open, uh, into OpenStack? Sure. Yeah, so with OpenStack, um, as you said, still widely used in the telco space. VNFs are still widely used. Um, and the challenge that they have, the problem they have is, um, compared to, say, an enterprise, is that they're trying to scale not necessarily only the CPU and RAM utilization of a workload, but the network is actually very important. And so they need highly performant uh, computes that can process a lot of networking, as well as the VNFs themselves actually tend to interact with the, the switch fabric, right? So it's kind of twofold. Mm -hmm. So typically in OpenStack, you would have, you know, your, your software-based overlays and, you know, we introduce things like DPDK to try and help with the performance of those workloads, but they tend to be a bit lackluster. And then you would have something like SIROV, right? And that was kind of the pass-through to get the most networking performance out of your compute so that the VNFs could perform at their best of the ability. Um, but that requires you to pass through uh, the NIC, and then you would have these VLANs that get created out of the NIC up to your top of rack switches. And so then that, that puts a burden on the top of rack switch and the switch fabric to have those VLANs either be pre-provisioned ahead of time as the VNFs, you know, could come online and attach themselves to it mm -hmm. or have an automation platform to make sure that when a VNF gets instantiated, it's using SIROV, for instance, and it's going to have to have these VLANs provisioned that we are able to make sure the top of rack switch has them provisioned at that moment in time. And so that's where that, that interface comes in. And so in OpenStack, you know, you have this ML2 plugin concept where, uh, you know, we would develop an ML2 plugin for, for Fabric Services Systems Connect. And you would just go through your normal ML2 API. You would create, you know, Neutron routers, Neutron subnets, Neutron networks, do the whole attachment, do your SIROV if required. And we would make sure that the top of rack switches have the, the correct plumbing in place. Okay. And again, this is making sure that, you know, as part of that operational chain, there's, you know, either resources in place or I can tie into an automated workflow or process to make sure, you know, the VNF is going to connect to the physical fabric properly. Yeah, exactly. And then, and like I was saying, in OpenStack, or I should say maybe the Telco cloud space, the VNFs themselves tend to then interact with the fabric. So it's important, obviously, you have the plumbing in place to connect the, obviously, as we said, the correct VLANs and the correct workloads to the to the switch fabric. But the second piece of that, of course, is that these VNFs tend to want to BGP peer with the fabric, right? So if mm. you're doing any sort of, um, you know, is it 4G, 5G? You know, where are you doing your slicing? Are you are you doing VRFs within your fabric? Are the the VNFs that are being instantiated do they have to BGP peer or peer in general with the switch fabric? Are you doing an L2 pass through to a DC gateway? These are all things that are taken into place 
that take place in the telco, which don't necessarily take place in the enterprise space, that is a challenge that we have to solve as a, as a data center switch fabric system. I know there's some connectivity there with uh, Kubernetes as well, although that's that's a pretty complicated environment considering we're dealing with containers <laughs> and multiple layers of networking going on. So how does Connect work with Kubernetes? Sure. So again, um, it's really focused on the telco space. So in the enterprise space, you typically have this concept of, you know, Kubernetes has this concept of CNIs and there's various plugins you can use for uh, connectivity amongst your workloads as you scale them horizontally, right? The promise of Kubernetes is a kind of scale up, scale down dynamic nature of, uh, of the applications and the networking has to follow. In the taco space, that's still true, although a bit limited to say uh, to, to some extent. But the big challenge in the telco space with Kubernetes is that the, the, the CNFs, right? So they basically took these VNFs and made them CNFs, still have this networking requirement where they have multiple interfaces, right? And multiple interfaces is not something that Kubernetes dealt with natively very well, as typically in an enterprise application, you have a single network interface on the application uh, uh, pod, right? And so there are CNIs in place from Kubernetes to let this uh, happen. But again, to adhere to having A, multiple interfaces on the CNFs, but B, also having it high performance and connecting to the fabric um, gets a bit more challenging. And so this is where Connect provides that API, again, ability for us to build a Kubernetes operator, which we have done as well, um, that allows us to, uh, as the telco CNFs gets instantiated and there's multiple interfaces that are being uh, attached to it, we can again dynamically ensure that the network uh, on which uh, the switch on which the the uh, CNF is sitting below um, has the correct connectivity. And again, similar following suit to what we do with OpenStack is again, we're making sure that we have the correct connectivity piece and that the CNFs themselves can interact with the data center switch fabric. So I, Ethan raised this question. And I, I think maybe we should just get a little bit more detail on it. You know, network engineers may feel a little reluctant about a dev team or a compute team uh, playing with the networking. So it sounds like you do have some kind of controls in place. Can you talk a little bit more about how you can assuage the the conscience of a network engineer who may have uh, hesitations about giving the keys to the to the car? Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. So. Like I mentioned earlier, kind of two modes of operation is a simplistic mode, which is, you know, uh, our plugins will listen to what's happening and react. And then there's a second model, which is the, the network engineers themselves can can go into Fabric Services system, provision networks as they see fit, right, with the correct security rules, potentially uh, the correct uh, QoS rules, if they were to put some QoS in place, uh, or any other uh, configuration parameters, and then expose those to the compute team. And through the use of metadata, uh, on the various compute platforms, uh, that would indicate to our plugins that they should attach the given workload to a very specific pre-existing network in Fabric Services system. The key here is that we're not pre-provisioning the switches, we're pre-provisioning Fabric Services system and all the rules and the intent that are behind these services mm -hmm. uh, on which we will attach the workloads. And only when the workloads get attached and that the compute teams have provided the correct metadata, which allows their workloads to attach themselves to a network which was owned and provisioned by the networking team, do we actually push a configuration down to the appropriate top of rack switch. Got it. Okay, so this is where that intent piece comes in, meaning I've got the rules in place, and then when a request comes in to get a network service, the system, fabric service system, will look at the rules and then make the appropriate configurations as approved as a, as opposed to having pre-configured everything and just sort of hanging around. Absolutely. Exactly. Okay, so last question, Erwan, the Connect service, does this require a separate license or is it something I automatically get if I've got fabric services system? 
Sure. So Connect itself is part of Fabric Services System. So again, Connect being the simplified set of API, APIs and plugin registration that allows for these plugins to be developed uh, against Fabric Services System. But of course, we do have our own plugins that we've developed for VMware OpenStack Kubernetes as discussed, and we do license on the plugins. Uh, but nothing stops an operator for developing their own plugins. That is the kind of purpose of Connect itself. Uh, but yes, we do have licenses for our own plugins. All right, well, thank you, Aaron, for joining us. And thanks again for, uh, to Nokia for being a sponsor. If you're curious about uh, Connect or Fabric Services System, head on over to nokia.ly slash fabric-services-system. That's nokia.ly slash fabric-services-system. We'll have that link and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.